Broadway Bullet, Volume 811, Go to a Show, for January 9th, 2018. Subscribe to Broadway Bullet for free and don't miss a single episode at broadwaybullet.com or at iTunes. sampling for you this episode a show on broadway off broadway and an independent theater production first q smith and gino carr are giving their all eight times a week in come from away and have been added through the show's development they walk us through the excitement of this exhilarating show then jersey boys is returning to new world stages and book writer rick ellis stops by to let us know about that and walk us through his early history in NYC up to the fateful call to write one of the most popular musicals of this century. Then, Frankenstein comes alive every Monday night in New York, and this time, the mad creator is Eric Sirota, writing book, music, and lyrics. He tells us about the show and the unique challenges of doing a long run, essentially in a festival format. So strap in and enjoy the show. thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I'd like to thank uh, my school, the University of Providence. They are our travel sponsor. They pay for me to get there as well as a student to come help out and meet all these people and stay there. And this is all because it relates to the program that I created. It's the School of Theater and Business Arts. You learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist, because it is important. If you hear anything in this show, it's that these artists have to treat themselves as an entrepreneurial business. And you learn how to do that as well as your art at the University of Providence. Check us out. There's a link at broadwaybullet.com. And uh, if you are a senior or junior, come on out and visit us. We'd love to see you. On the boards. Come From Away uh, won for Best Director at the Tonys, and I think in almost any other year without Dear Evan Hansen would have been a lock to win Best Musical. And uh, I got a chance to see it in May. I loved the show, and I am very excited to be sitting here talking to 
two of the performers that made me love the show so much. <laughs> we have Q Smith and Gino Carr here with us. How you guys doing? Good. Yeah. Good, good. Thanks Can't for complain. having us. It's nice to be inside on a rainy day in New York. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so coming away is now kind of getting settled in. It's it's survived the spring shakedown of yes. I can't believe even Groundhog Day closed. Right, so, that's what I've heard. I, I didn't see yeah. it, but people were really yeah, upset I saw, about it. I mean, it. listen, every every year there's a lot of stuff yeah. that unfortunately closes, but this was a this was a killer year. Yeah, well, yeah, like uh, for the thirteen Tonys. shows in the you know the wow. fall and like <laughs> wow, yeah, like I said, in any other. I mean, I love. I mean, Comfort Way is one of my favorite shows I've seen Thank uh, you. on. on on Broadway, and I haven't seen Dear Evan Hansen, but I've heard the music, and I do love, love, mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. the music from yeah. Dear Evan Hansen. It's a good show. Listen, any musical is yeah. a good musical in my book, but, <laughs> but when it comes down to you know commercial theater, sometimes it gets real tough to keep things open. But like I say, I, I can imagine in any other year, this would have been, you know, I think Come From Away would have been a lock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just never know. We're proud of the show, and we yeah. are having yeah. a great time, which is so yeah, important. Yeah, we and totally are. Our neighbor, Dear Evan Hansen, across the street still there, and we'll just... We just give him some looks once in a while out our window. Just mm, <laughs> really, mm. we his arm to heel break it again. So, so what was the process? How long? I, I, I understood. Were you guys involved heavily with the whole uh, development process of Come From Away? It, yeah, this it, I, is... I talked with Sue and the whole production teams. This was mm-hmm. quite. Uh, Along yeah, this, this sucker's been incubating for a long time. Yeah, uh, in the matter of like uh, how long it takes a Broadway show to develop and get to Broadway from its, mm-hmm. you know, incub. What yeah, do you call yeah, it? Incubation stage. Incubation stage. Its nascent beginnings. It was really short. I think it was yeah. like five. Yeah. I don't know, five years or something like that. Short, short, short. So we both got involved um, after they did the initial workshops and they did a run of it, like a a small version of it at um, Sheridan College in Canada. And then it had a couple of readings, table readings, and then uh, they performed at NAMPT a few years mm-hmm. back. And uh, we started at La Jolla. We were the first production yeah. at La Jolla. And so we had 14 weeks, you know, to be with this show and to develop it. And our choreography, our, our choreographer, Kelly Devine, who was awesome, mm-hmm. she really, I feel like she, we all had a moment. We all mm-hmm. had our moments. We were trying to learn each other and figure each other mm-hmm. out. But she really put the choreography onto our bodies you know she kind of figured out how we moved and how we sort of you know use the mm-hmm. stage and the space and she put the choreography mm-hmm. on our bodies which was kind of cool I mean yeah yeah um so we we had a lot you know it was very integral um yeah. we learned a lot doing the show and it had unlike a lot of shows many out of town kind of tryouts yeah you know we had La Jolla Playhouse Seattle Rep Ford's Theater in DC mm-hmm. uh Toronto traveled up to the, Gander. the rock. Went to Gander, <laughs> went to Gander yes. and kind of got the Gander blessing. <laughs> yeah, you know? did two concerts there. So, you know, just, just art from the world premiere. It's been two over two and a half years now. Yeah. Just yeah. kind of crazy bouncing around for a while, but learning a lot on the way and mm-hmm. refining the show and sculpting it and crafting it. And Yeah, it was started. It was in great shape, you know, yeah, in the beginning. Really so <laughs> every time we sculpted or crafted something, it was very, very minute, but it would make a world of difference. You know what I mean? Just a line here or... You know, something here, a different movement here, you know. Um, it was in good shape from the beginning. Yeah, it's not one of those shows where they would just overhaul you yeah. know, complete numbers and, you know, yeah, take things in like and out. That. It was sort of a, it, the spine, we say, has always been there. It's just the little refinements that help mm-hmm. make it, I think, the, the powerful piece that it is today. Mm-hmm. So, so um, as someone who was in New York during 9-11, and uh, actually the whole experience for me is I 
was heading down to work, New York One was being kind of oblivious. They're like, the second something hit the other tower, they thought it was like a hang glider at the point where I oh, left. It right. like, but the second one it hit, and they were still thinking it was just like a glider or something. Mm-hmm. you know. And Forever Underground, when I came out on 6th Avenue, I, it was the you know Armageddon yeah, <laughs> you sure. know, cloud rolling down the street and walked into work, and they're like, dude, the second tower just fell. So between like hang glider and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. thing to fall... You know, I didn't know what to expect from, you know, a musical. I, I don't know if anybody can know what to expect. I, mm-hmm. I told you before the thing that was unexpected. Uh, um, but I think the biggest thing I take out of it, and I, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's odd they took it out of it, because it's clearly the theme that the writers were going for, is that joyous things and joyous moments and joyous friendships can come out of an awful, horrible tragedy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. There, there are going to be bad things that happen. You know, this, yeah. was, this was a really bad one. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, there are so many joyful things that, that also came out of it. Um, I, I was in D.C. at the time rehearsing for a tour, so I experienced it a little through the D.C. lens. Mm-hmm. But, but everyone talks about how the days following, especially in New York, mm-hmm. people were nicer to each other. Yeah. People I, looked each other in the eyes I more, held doors. I 42nd and 181st Street, and it was like yeah. everybody was trapped in the city. They were yeah. outside chatting and yeah. friendly, and what's the news? Have you heard the news? Right. And it felt like a small town. Yeah, in it together, <laughs> you know, looking out for each other. Um, so that's, I think you're right, it's a lot of what this show is about and what David and Irene, the writers, were looking for was that sense of community that sometimes can come out of tragedy and how... Wouldn't it be nice if it were like that more often <laughs> without needing the tragedy, but especially in the face of something like that. Yeah, it was a tragic day. Yeah. Tragic, tragic day. I was in Queens um, on my way to an audition for The Lion King. Uh, Lion King Disney, I think. My roommate ran out and was like, something just happened and you can't go. And I looked at the television. I was like, oh, that is awful. That's horrible. I am unemployed. I have to get to this callback. <laughs> so I left again. We all thought it was an accident. Yeah, that's left it. again, and she runs down the street. And you know, like, I feel like everybody outside of New York had better news about what was yeah. going on than we did. Yeah. <laughs> and our other roommate, she ended up walking home. She worked not too far from there. She came home. She was barefoot and all mm-hmm. covered in soot. And we just stared at each other in the doorway for a good ten seconds. Nobody said anything. And she goes into her room, and she doesn't come out for three days. Cries and sure. throws things, and she knew people. And uh, we always talk on September 11th. We always make it a point to chat. Um, but yeah, it was it was a tragic day. But I'm so thankful for this show. And so many people tell us their stories after yeah. the show. I feel like it's a release for them. They're afraid to come because they don't know what to expect. Yeah, was- and they see it, and they're left with so much joy. And I feel like they just can't wait to share, you know, their experience. And they cry and they're saddened, but they're they're. Um, you know, they're okay with us hearing their stories. And I think it's an outlet for some people. I think that's one of the reasons why our producers and creative team were so smart, taking it all over the country and to Canada before, <laughs> just to see how it played in different markets. And, you know, Toronto has a very different connection to the yeah. events than mm-hmm. D.C., mm-hmm. <laughs> than La Jolla, than yeah. Seattle. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they were really smart to sort of say, okay, well, let's kind of test that a little bit and see. And we, when we mm-hmm. were in D.C., we, were, we actually did the show on 9-11 mm-hmm. last year. And we've had, you know, first responders from both areas come and survivors and families. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just been amazing to, to, to have them, A, tell us their stories, but B, also say thank you for honoring the memory of, of the people, mm-hmm. you know, who, who made that sacrifice, you know. Mm-hmm. And thank you for um, kind of sometimes even replacing some of the darkness with this, this light 
this story they maybe didn't hear about because their world was so consumed with the darkness of what was happening here. They didn't even realize all the goodness that was happening elsewhere. You know, and thousands and thousands of people were, were you know, displaced. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was thousands just in Gander alone, you know. So it, it's, it's really been a, such a joy to have people come to us in, in those tears and, and smiling through their tears and saying thank mm-hmm. you and enjoying the show. Because it's a fun show. Yeah. But it's also a healing show, I think, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I imagine it as an acting challenge. Um, this is going to be have a little bit of a preface. So I felt like... It's not it's as almost sung through as it is. I felt almost like it's not a musical. Yeah, so like it's a play. Um, you know, yeah. It felt like a play with music, like with a lot of music and very yes. little dialogue. But uh, it and 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 even somebody said, "Yeah, I've heard uh, I've heard um, Laramie Project the musical, which is very accurate in terms of that. You guys all play multiple roles. Um, it's you know mostly sung the whole through." And I, my thought is, given the subject matter and the fact that you're dealing with Canadian accents and accents of foreigners, that there had, how do you find the fine line between parody and honesty when you're doing the, that many characters? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is something we, I think we see a lot in comedy. You know, sure. the comedic, oh, yeah, let's mm-hmm. play six, seven, mm-hmm. you know, different actors. Um, mm-hmm. But not a lot. I mean, Laramie Project does it, but I don't see this happen a lot with drama, mm-hmm. and then add music to the mix and add mm-hmm. the accents and everything else. This had, I, I think there's a lot of, I think this is harder than people look, think yes. it looks. It had yeah. a lot of... Yes. It's, it's a real <laughs> special balance to strike, uh-huh. and that was one of the things that we were, you know, so lucky Especially to have. you open up one of the songs, I know, with a very, you definitely got the Canadian, yay. Oh, know? yeah. <laughs> no way. Yeah, it, it was something that we worked on a lot. We had a dialect coach, Joel Goldies, who's amazing, who was with us from, from day one at La Jolla. And, you know, the whole creative team, they, Dave and Irene talked a lot about wanting to be sure that they honored and, and you know, respectfully told the stories of everyone in, in this piece. And... Like you said, it can easily go over to farce or can easily become mm-hmm. painted too broadly with, you know, a dialect or with a physical choice. But they all wanted to be really sure that we were respectful of all of these stories. And, yes, you laugh a lot. And, yes, a lot of it's funny. But it's all done from that truthful, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. respectful place. And it was... Mm-hmm. Which I will add, that's the other thing I wasn't expecting, is it to be so funny. Yes, In the middle of this drama, right. I say, it's yes. a drama. And it's <laughs> honest. But it's very funny a lot of the time yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's it's the people of newfoundland it's, it's yeah. they're musical people they're funny people they're storytellers but they're also yes. you know sweet loving caring yes. people so i think it, it encompasses and, and helps i don't know encapsulate kind of who they are as well mm-hmm. in a lot of ways our director was awesome in keeping keeping um each character very pure and very mm. truthful Absolutely. and a lot of us have done comedies and Plays where it's just very like yeah. you know like ah, jazz hands, <laughs> and so she's too. waving her jazz hands <laughs> yeah. in the air for those people who are blind, <laughs> which is our listeners. And he really he really pushed us to uh, you know go further, stretch it, be more honest, be more take that away. You know, just he stripped us down yes. to to the core of each character, even if it's one line or two mm-hmm. lines. He just stripped us down, and though some of those lines may be comic comical, mm-hmm. um, the people are real. And so, and we wanted to be sure not to disrespect um, the people of Newfoundland or anyone else. Um, but he was he was great in that. And there were many days where I went home and I kept shaking my head like I'm a suck. I'm doing a terrible job. I mean, <laughs> but at the end of the day, after you know a little while, I was like, ah, he was just stripping, stripping it all away, just so I can yeah. get to the 
the core and the root. It's all about the simple storytelling. Yeah. And that's what makes it so effective, I think. You know, like you said, it's just us, a couple different actors playing lots of different characters, and just it's that theatricality of it that makes it exciting as an actor to play all those roles, you know, to encapsulate all those different stories. But it's definitely a challenge, too. We're having, we're having fun, but for a it's while there. It's the first there, show I've ooh, seen for in, a while, it was tough. <laughs> in a long time that has like been, that makes me want to act again. Oh, mm. <laughs> a lot of people say that. Yeah. People, people say that. They're like, I stepped away from musical theater. I was sad of where, you know, where it was going. And this show makes me, inspires me again. You know what I mean? And I'm like, wow, that is awesome. It is a special piece. And just the way it's told is, is different and very unique. Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, it's unexpected. When you come in there, like, what is this going to be? Oh, wow. And that's how they're telling the story. That's cool. Yeah. You know, so you, so you come into not really knowing what to expect, but it's this triple whammy of, of fun and, mm -hmm. and art and drama and, and you know. We're pretty honesty. spoiled. We're very we spoiled. Pretty spoiled. <laughs> rotten. First of all, it's an hour, 40 minutes yeah. long, yes. no intermission, so yeah. we're done. So if you come in the theater feeling some kind of way, some days you're tired, some yeah. days, you know, and we're human. <laughs> but then you think like, it's an hour, 40 minutes. I can totally do this an hour, 40 minutes, but just the... I don't know, the richness of the piece. I mean, gosh, I don't know what is in store for all of us next, but I just know that we are, you know, living our dream right now. This is what a, what a dream. What a story to tell every night, Yeah, you know? Best job in the world. Best job in the world. Absolutely, And yes. we love each other and our crew and our production team. We just we love each other. We love hanging out together. We're just spoiled. One, one big happy family, right? Yeah. yeah. So one thing I was struck by, and then so upset that I was so struck by, why should this be such an odd thing that I was struck by the fact that this show is filled with, like, regular people? You know, yeah. the actors, you know? Yeah. Uh, no six-foot-tall Rockettes you're talking yeah. about? No, no big, you know, no guy, muscular the, guys. Yeah, like, the we got some... who spend three hours at the gym right, and keep right. their career. No and, big star, yeah. no big, like, R&B television yeah. reality star. It's just... It's just us, just you know. Normal I mean? actors, a lot over thing. that you know aren't you know just out of college. Yeah, you know? one of the ma more <laughs> mature casts on Broadway. More mature, yeah. middle age. We're, we're definitely a unique cast for for Broadway. Yeah, it's again the the show is unique <coughs> the way it's written. I mean, like you said, it's it's you know we're basically twelve principal actors yeah. working as an ensemble. So that's very different from normal shows where you have the principals yeah. and you have the ensemble and everyone's great, but they have kind of different strengths and. One thing that I know the, the the whole team wanted out of this, out of all of us, was you know strong actors, character actors, who are real people, who are grounded, who are honest, uh, but also can sing and also can get along and work mm -hmm. as a team. Because unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way when you get someone who's a really good principal actor. Sometimes mm -hmm. they just want to be a principal actor, and not yes. have to sing the ensemble stuff or do that. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's uh, we're we're a very unique group. Mm -hmm. We look unique, we sound unique, we are mm -hmm. unique, and it's kind of a. The, one of the coolest things about the show is that we're yeah. all real people. That's right. And we've heard that a lot. It's funny yeah. you bring it up because we have heard that a lot from people. Yeah. Everyone people. just looks normal up there. Yeah. Like, well, and thank you, I guess. <laughs> You're saying I don't look good? Like, what are you? <laughs> and then you meet actors, you know, in their 50s and 40s, you know, yeah. after the show, and they're like, I could do a role in this show. I could, like, when is the tour coming out? Yeah. And they, they get re-inspired. They're yeah. like, there is something for me after all, you know? I'm like, yeah, Absolutely. All shapes, all colors, all sizes, all ages. It's it's very very cool, very very cool. Yeah, very diverse. And you know, and it's you know, like I said, you're just saying your your question about what is it? I mean, I don't look good. Right. It's like, but no, there's no like I've, I've acted before, and, and and part of why I left acting and focused more on like writing and behind the scenes is I'm like, 
I know that I'm going to be, and people still say, look, he didn't exist when I quit acting, but I knew I would be like Seth Rogen's thing, the comedic yeah. kind of, I'm a little odd looking in film world. I mean, I, I mean, it's taking, yeah. you know, where you're constantly getting judged, but I don't think I'm like a homely guy in real life. And most people I look at, I don't, you know, it's like, you're handsome. You're not like Broadway handsome, which is just weird. I'm not Broadway, I'd say, you know, film handsome. Right. Just because you're not a real person. But you look at England, like it's, I don't think it's a universal thing. Mm. It's an American thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you look at British television and they got like ordinary people playing, mm-hmm. you know, lead roles and mm-hmm. regular roles. And I mean, in America, it's like even if you're the second buddy assistant down the thing, you're, mm-hmm. you're either generally grotesquely, or mm-hmm. not grotesquely, but you're, you're extremely an extreme character. Type. Yeah, an extreme type. Or you're extremely buffed and chiseled or you're yeah. whatever, but you're not just like. Person, I know, (laughs) and that can be the hardest part, especially for a lot of young actors coming out of school and and starting their careers. And like, well, if I'm not this or that, what what am I? And you know, if there's one thing you learn as you go through your you know your career as an actor is you have to be true to yourself. You can't be anything (laughs) other than who you are. I mean, there's only so much you can do with plastic Mm -hmm. surgery or you know Mm -hmm. going to voice Mm -hmm. lessons. There's Mm -hmm. only so much you can do. There's what so much of the uniqueness and power of who you are as an actor is just that who you are. And you have to just embrace that and do the best you can with your career and find stuff. But this all this found us. I think we were all just the right people in the right place at the right time. Yeah. You know, and we're all pretty good looking people. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I think it, it's, it's, it's just nice that this piece about real people can be populated by real people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, how, this is a hard question to ask in any way that sounds like polite. But I do want to know, because I think there's a lot of people who want to know, which is how much harder is it or... Uh, how is you, are your careers different, or how do you approach your careers as somebody who looks like normal people? Because you've obviously managed to succeed with your mm-hmm. careers. So oh, yeah. is it harder, or what have you found, or what are the ways to make it through not being yeah. six foot four with, you know, yeah. uh, six pack abs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or five just... foot two and six pack yeah. abs. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there, there are the definitely trends in, in theater and TV film where yeah. certain looks are in, and, you know, yeah. a lot of youth is in right now, of course, and mm-hmm. beauty and yeah. chiseled. And, um, but there's, there's so much work out there, and it just knowing who you are and I think accepting it is so important. Mm-hmm. And playing to your strengths. I mean, you don't have to pigeonhole yourself. Casting people yeah. will do that for you, unfortunately, a lot of times. But... If you go in there and do your best every audition and try and mm-hmm. give that unique perspective on something, mm-hmm. do that preparation. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's what people want to see. They want to see, wow, that was a different take on that. Mm-hmm. I had this in my mind, but, like, why couldn't they play that role? That's right. That's you know, right. you just never know walking in. You think, I know Jen uh, Colella in our show says when she auditioned for this, she saw the breakdown. It was like, and there's a line about um, Beverly Bass being 51. And she's a lyric about it. She's like, well, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to get this. Tell her hi for me, too. I yeah, interviewed her I when will. she did High Fidelity. I will. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, absolutely. But she said, you know, I'm just going to go in and use it kind of as a, you know, a little training, just going to relax, and you, you just never know because you think I'm not that. But a lot of times we're more than we think we are. Mm. I think it's just embracing ourselves and, mm-hmm. you know, playing to our own strengths, and there's a lot out there. There's a lot of things I won't ever play, and that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. So what what have been your favorite moments in the show so yes, far? Yes, all of them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Man, it's been such an incredible journey together. It's mm. so unique to have, you know, this many years together and with the, most of us all being a part of it the whole time. There's been a couple moving pieces, you know, here and there depending on schedule. But generally, there's been 12 of us who've been together for two and a half years, mm-hmm. better part of two and a half years. 
And so that's amazing to create that sense of family. You don't get that most, you know, in a lot of musicals, especially come to Broadway, they recast everybody, or yeah. they get this name or that name. But once mm-hmm. again, it's a testament to the to our creative team and our producers who said, no, this these are the people who do it. They work. Mm-hmm. They make sense. They're a family. It all it all works. So mm-hmm. why mess with a good thing? Mm-hmm. So we've had so many ad- adventures together, and going to Gander <laughs> was just incredible to be up yeah. in Newfoundland and meet so many of the people. Yeah. That we, we, we portray and talk about and see the places that we talk about. So, yeah, so some of the people you actually played saw this. Right? Oh, almost, almost, how, all, of almost all of them. Have how seen did it you guys once. feel doing your characters yeah. for the people they were? <laughs> a little daunting sometimes. A little daunting, but yeah. you know, it's nothing but love in the room. You know what I mean? And, and it's nothing but love. Our writers and producers have set it up in a way where they, you know, they'll speak to the, our people yeah. and tell them, you know, what they're about to expect and, you know, um, tell them about us. And then we all meet each other and we love on each other. And it's, yeah, it's, it's all love. I was definitely nervous when Hannah and she brings her family, you know, but David and Irene are writers. They have met with them numerous times and it was just nothing but love. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm not Irish. I don't, I don't know. Da, 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 da. And they just accept it and they love it and they yeah. are moved by the story and it's awesome. A lot of them are just so proud, not of their own story, if that makes sense. Like, that, mostly as Newfoundlanders, just like, I don't, it was just a tray of sandwiches. I just, I just, you know, drove a bus. It was fine. It was no big deal for them. But that sense of like, wow, they're telling a story about us. And there's a, a pride to that, yeah. you know, that they're yeah. being portrayed so, you know, in such a, a wonderful light as they deservedly mm-hmm. um, should be. Um, the, there is this sense of like, I'm in a Broadway musical. You know, they feel like they're in the Broadway musical <laughs> yeah, a little bit, and yeah. it's it's so sweet. And they, they've all just been so warm and, and loving and accepting and so complimentary. And they, yeah. a lot of them come a lot. I mean, Beverly Bass has been oh, seventy yeah. something times, eighty something times. Yeah. Now. And they they flew um, the people from Newfoundland um, to New York for our opening. Yeah, our opening and here was amazing. Some of them it was their first trip to New York. Some of them it was their first Broadway show. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, sitting in the audience, seeing your story, your life, yeah. hearing your words, hearing yes. your words yeah. on the stage? How overwhelming and moving that can, you know, be and overwhelming. And, um, and it was awesome. They all came up on the stage after the show for the curtain call, and they stood next to us, you know, and we all took a big old bow together because. It is a community. It is a family, you know, and I think that was yeah. right on our producers and director to have them all come and we can all take the bow together. Yeah. For without their stories, yeah. we wouldn't be here, yeah. you know. So true. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> They're <laughs> awesome. I miss it, actually. I miss Gander. I miss oh, no. I was going to say, you miss it. It's been last week. We need to go and recharge our batteries. About a, it was about a year ago right yeah, now, actually. Yeah, actually, yeah. It was a beautiful crazy. time. It was a beautiful time. Everybody wasn't too cold went. yet. Our band <laughs> went. Our, everybody went. It was just Oh, yeah. I, a great time. I've wanted to interview pit musicians forever, and I haven't, but I've actually been uh, talking to it. I figured this would be the show to get yeah. two musicians to talk to. Any uh, questions I should ask that I might not think of? Any dirt, you know? that <laughs> <laughs> Our musicians are Awesome. They're the the best best band on Broadway. The best band on Broadway. And again, talk about unique. I mean, we have like a very unique orchestration to this show. Um, You know, it's it's it just goes along this whole theme of you know defying expectations and being unique and stripped down. I mean, it's not a huge orchestra. It's not trying to be anything. It's not. It's just a cool band that plays cool Cool music. music. That you know is is so powerful. The way it's written, orchestrated, it just it Mm. supports everything that happens in the show and. Tells yes. so much of the story for us and sets the mood for yes. us, and we just kind of ride that musical mm-hmm. wave, and it's it's amazing. And you you've experienced the end of the show; people just leave and they're just on this high mm-hmm. because 
they leave with with the band. I'm not blowing anything by saying this, but the band is this really great playoff that sends people out into the mm-hmm. world hugging each other and you know, clapping and jumping and yeah. really excited. So we're, we're lucky to have the best band with some of the best music mm-hmm. that we've ever had the privilege yeah. to, you know, to sing and, and dance to. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Well, so. I, uh, you got another weekend here to break your legs, <laughs> break yes. a leg or whatever, yes. and wow audiences and hopefully years more to come. Uh, yes. Thank you guys so much for coming down. Thanks for having My us. Pleasure. Thanks Keith for- Smith, Gina Carr, uh, it's been a pleasure. I am I feel very pleased to have been able to witness your performances in May and Thank talk you. to you now. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Q Smith and Gino Carr had so much great stuff to say and so much great advice for uh, actors and other performers. And like always, we have the full unedited interviews available. Just go to broadwaybullet.com, search for the show notes for 811, and it'll take you to those. <laughs> Listening room. A little later in this program, we're going to talk with Eric Sirota, the writer for Frankenstein. But to kind of get you in the mood for that, we've got a demo from the show. This is Once in a Dream, sung by Victor Frankenstein, played by Jonathan Coberta, and accompanied by Anessa Marie. This is Once in a Dream. Close. Rick Ellis is a three-time Tony nominee, 
batting three for three, I believe. With, <laughs> yes, uh, losing, <laughs> losing three times. Thank you. Thank you for rubbing salt on that wound. Hey, I would love, <laughs> I would love to have lost the Tony three times. <laughs> three, three times Stick at Stick around. Any, listen, you know, anything <laughs> could happen to me, it could happen to you. And, and, and such, a, such a great body of work already with uh, Jersey Boys, with Peter and the Star Catcher, and with Adam's Family. And uh, we're here to talk about a few things, and namely the first kind of thing at hand is that Jersey Boys is returning it off is. Broadway to yes. New York City. It's yeah. coming back to New York from, <laughs> from across the river uh, to the uh, New World stages on 50th Street, and, and uh, we, we, uh, we open on November 22nd, just minutes before Thanksgiving. You're not a stranger to a Broadway transfer to the New World stages home either, are you? Uh, gee, you make it sound so you make it you make it sound so old hat, you know. It's, it's, uh, well, not uh, that many Broadway, not many shows have tried this model yet to begin, and, and you've got two of them now. Well, um, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, Avenue Q um, sort of pioneered yeah. this, uh, and it uh, it opened on Broadway in uh, two thousand and four, mm-hmm. and uh, won the Tony for Best Musical that year, and then uh, several years later uh, picked up stakes and. And moved to the other side of Eighth Avenue, and they've been there yeah. now for about ten years, yeah. which I think is fantastic. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm doing a happen to be doing a show with the guy who directed Avenue Q, Jason Moore, and um, uh, I, and I asked him if he thought that uh, it made sense, and he said, Yeah, 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 you should, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. So I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm also excited because we have a great company of actors. Some of them have been in the show before. Some of them have been in the show playing other parts, and now they're playing different parts. And uh, it's a really, really good group of people. Uh, I'm rehearsing a show in the same building where this new company of Jersey Boys is rehearsing, so I can go up there and, and, uh, and stick my nose in the room every now and then, and I can tell you that they're, uh, it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be really good. Now, Jersey Boys was your Broadway debut as a playwright, book writer, correct? Correct. <laughs> And uh, I hear a butt coming. No, no, well, no. In my experience, nothing, nothing that is said before the word butt really counts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just watched that, saw that a couple days ago, too. No, my butt isn't that I am really, as, as somebody who is older myself and is a writer also, I am pleased. I, I personally watch everybody who's, you know, 25, 30, you know, waltz on to Broadway anymore. And I'm like, Argh! oh. But I know you weren't a spring chicken when you. Got on the broad. Oh no, no, I'm not trying. Stop to, trying to butter me up. But, <laughs> oh, but, but, but flattery, no, flattery. But no, when I, when I was looking at the dates, especially coming in here, I'm like, oh wow, this this gives me hope that you know, life. Well, is... that's why I said, <laughs> if if I can lose three times, so can you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I. Uh, it's nice of you to point out that I am uh, old. That might be the cracking sound. <laughs> in my water bottle. That was my water bottle, ladies okay. and gentlemen. Um. Uh, I, but I wasn't sitting around yeah, and doing you know, nothing. And, uh, you need to understand that. Yeah, I mean, the, I was I'm trying honestly, to. Yeah. I was tr- keeping the wool from the door for many years. And, and that's what I'm wondering. So, what like led up to, you know, Broadway for all those out there who are still leading up to Broadway, which is ninety nine point nine percent of the writers. Well, out. I I'll give you the thumbnail, um, or the hangnail. Uh, I I I was uh, I was born in New York City and and grew up here and and I saw my first Broadway show when I was three. So Broadway for me was, uh, I think, from the time I was three. My mother claims that I sat there very quietly. It was the first time in three years that I had actually not made a sound. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, of course, uh, theater tickets in those days were 90 cents. 
So, um, but with was, inflation, so it was, was cheaper. <laughs> it was actually yeah. cheaper to keep taking me to the theater than to hire a babysitter. <laughs> and um, and she and and that way she got to see shows, and I was quiet. So it was a win-win, and I fell in love with the theater and uh, and never uh, looked back. So to me, the theater was always the be-all and the end-all. Loved it. Um, it you know I think it kept me alive as a teenager. Uh, when I was going through all of the crazy teenage stuff. Can you say bullshit on a podcast? You, you can say anything I was going you through want. all the crazy teenage bullshit. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I think uh, it was probably Stephen Sondheim, Harold Prince, and Michael Bennett who kept me alive, literally. Uh, and um, I thought, I'm going to be an actor. And I, uh, I thought that, uh, in spite of the fact that my folks... As much as they loved the theater, they, they didn't love the idea of my uh, having a career in the theater. So <clears throat> they would clip out articles about how many actors were unemployed and things like that. I went away to college and uh, was, uh, uh, was uh, having a perfectly fine time. Uh, but I, it was upstate New York at Cornell. And there was a very, very bad winter uh, in the winter of 75. Uh, and, um, and I thought, I got to get, I, I, I gotta get out of the countryside. I just can't handle all of this countryside. Cows were freezing in the snow, and I, I, I got to get out of here. I was a junior in college, but I applied to graduate school anyway, um, a place called Yale Drama School, because I'd heard that that was the place to go if you wanted to be a, a good actor. It's an okay school. So I applied to Yale Drama School, um, and, uh, and against in, uh, impossible odds, uh, was accepted. I was accepted at the age of 19. Uh, you, you know, which was extraordinary twice. First of all, I had no experience as an actor. I'm sure I had no talent as an actor, but they saw something in me, um, you know, in terms of the way they cast a, each incoming group of people. Um, but usually actors went out, experimented in the world, had a bit of a career, figured out what they were bad at, and then came to Yale to learn to be better. I was just uh, a raw clay and uh, uh, I somehow got into this class and uh, spent three years at uh, Yale uh, Drama School. And on the day that I um, got out, um, I took the train from New Haven to New York and auditioned for a Broadway show and was cast. Wow. <laughs> and uh, that was in May of 1979. And, um, and on September 4th of 1979, I was fired from that Broadway show. Uh, and that was devastating. Um, and I, uh, once again was, uh, you know, had one foot out the window <laughs> and I thought, what on earth am I going to do? I had, I had taken an apartment. I, my agent dropped me because he said, you must be a pain in the ass. They fired you. And, um, you know, I had big existential issues and I also had, uh, uh an empty stomach and I thought, um, uh, what am I going to do? And a friend of mine who was a uh, publicist, uh, no longer alive. Um, hired me at $75 a week to write pitch letters for him and to um, pick up Agnes DeMille every morning um, and uh, uh, take her to rehearsals for a revival of Oklahoma that was uh, uh, happening at the Palace Theater, um, starring uh, Lawrence Guitard and Christine Andreas and featuring Christine Ebersole in her first oh, Broadway show wow. and Harry Groner. They were, the, um, they were the second bananas, Ado Annie and uh, Will Parker. And when I say uh, picking up Agnes DeMille, I literally mean <laughs> picking up Agnes DeMille. I went to her home every morning. She'd had a stroke, so she wasn't mobile. So I would go to her apartment 
and I would pick her up in my arms and I would take her down to the car and I, we would drive up to the palace and then I would pick her up and I would walk her down the aisle <laughs> and up onto the stage. And at the end of the day, I would do that in reverse. And in the meantime, I would write pitch letters for this press agent who was you know, looking to increase his, his business. And, and I lived on that $75 a week for uh, a few weeks. And then I, I heard that uh, Tommy Toon... Uh, was directing a play, a Carol Churchill play called Nine. And of course, having gone through drama school, I knew that Carol Churchill was a writer of note. And I decided somehow or other, I got Tommy Toon's address. And I put my little um, headshot and my sad little resume into a thing with a note saying, I know I'm going to be great in this play. I've, it's this, this is the part I should be, and this is what I should do. And I went to Yale and all that stuff. This kind of nerve that you only have when you're 23 years yeah. old. And I, I pushed it under his door, and I turned around to stand up to go back to the elevator, and the door across the hall opened, and out came the guy who had been my tennis counselor at sleepaway camp when I was a little boy, <laughs> a guy named Steve Rubell. He, I, of course, knew it was Steve Rubell because after he was my tennis counselor, he became, like, the most famous person in the world because mm-hmm. he ran Studio 54. Okay. And it was 1979, and Studio 54 was, like, still a big thing. And I said to myself oh my God, there's Steve Rubell, and we're waiting for the elevator together. And he looks at me and he says, do I know you? And I said, well, you were my tennis counselor about, you know, 15 years ago. And he went, oh, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm trying to act, you know, I'm trying to get a job as an actor. He said, uh, would you like to be a, uh, would you like to work at Studio 54? Um, you know, uh, over, uh, it, it late, it's late, it's, it's a late gig. You'd still be able to do auditions and stuff like that. I'll pay you $10 an hour. And, uh, you know, you'd start working at five in the afternoon and you'd finish around five in the morning. And I was living at that time in a little um, studio, a one room flat on 57th Street. And this Street 54 is obviously on um, 54th Street, I think. Yeah. And um, uh, so I was making my $75 writing pitch letters. And then I was also making $10 an hour working for Steve Rubell as a busboy, mm-hmm. clinking around with empty bottles in what is now 54 Below. Yeah. Um, for all your listeners who uh, who go to see those uh, acts there, that used to be the um, the <laughs> used to be a really oh, scary, yeah. really scary basement at Studio Fifty Four. And 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 uh, and uh, whilst I was uh, juggling those two jobs, I got it. Uh, I got uh, cast in the um, uh, original uh, company of the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and and uh, went up there at the very beginning of nineteen eighty for two. Years and then came back with a show from there to uh, to New York. Um, uh, while I was doing that show, I auditioned for a musical that was being uh, that was uh, Joe Papp was producing uh, that was being written by this uh, crazy talented Canadian genius that no one had ever heard of. Um, uh, but it was some musical about the Red Baron from World War One. This crazy Canadian guy uh, is named Des Mackinoff. So um, I got cast in that musical, and that's how I know Des from all the way back in 1982. And um, while I was doing that show, the people who did the advertising for the public theater where the show was came to the opening night party, and I struck up a conversation with some dude. And he, uh, uh, the next day, um, called the office to find out how to get in touch with me. And I got a phone call from this guy, and he said, my partner is away on vacation, you seemed like a funny guy. Do you think you could write funny headlines for me? And I said, I can't know. I don't, I, what do you mean? Five, what? I don't do that. It's not what I do. And he said, I'll pay you $100. Now, I was getting $149 a week to be in this 
show about the Red Baron at the public theater, plus an extra $20 uh, because I was the dance captain. And um, so a hundred, you know, but a hundred dollars in, you know, in 1982 was, uh, a, you know, a life-saving amount of money. It meant that, you know, I could get some, buy some cans of tuna or something, you know. It's hard. Eating was hard in New York City, even in those days for $169 a week. And um, so I said, I, I, I take it back. I can write funny headlines. I can write funny headlines. And so on August 23rd, 1982, I, I, I went up to Sereno Coin, uh, which was then called Sereno Coin and Nappy, uh, a, a very small, nascent breakaway advertising agency at that time um, with about 10 people there, a small little office. And I was asked to write some funny headlines for um, Annie <laughs> and, uh, and a Marvin Hamlish benefit that was happening in Texas. And uh, at the end of the day, I went to get my $100. And the guy said, do you think you'd come back tomorrow? Because I've got some more stuff for you to do. And I thought, well, he is paying me $100, so I guess I'll, I'll do it. And that happened on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And on Friday, <laughs> I finally said, look, you know, I, you've gotten your $100 worth. I, I can't do this anymore. And he said, all right, let me give you a check. And he gave me a check for $500. He meant $100 a day. <laughs> I thought my head was going to explode. So I said, do you, do you need me next week? And, and, and he said, yeah. So I went for a second week. And by then I knew everyone who was working at the agency. And I thought, this is so, this is like fantastic. You know, you get to, you make like silly jokes and they pay you $100 a day. This was, you know, my ship had come in. Uh, and then he said, you don't need to come back because my partner is coming back from her holiday. And uh, so that was the end of that. And the show was finishing at the public and I was getting ready to go back to finding my next act acting job. And then I got a call from the woman who uh, was the, uh, uh, this, this guy's partner and the creative director named Nancy Coyne. And um, she said, uh, I hear that we should meet. You should come up and, and uh, you know, let's have a conversation. And I went up and uh, while I was waiting for her to come out of a meeting, I went to an art director who had a problem and I wrote some headlines for him. And he came into Nancy's office and said, here, what about these? And she said, who wrote this? And, well, the guy who's waiting outside to see you. So she waved me in and she said, you're hired. You know, but I, I could be like, you come and work for me two days a week. And I thought, fantastic. And three weeks later, she offered me a full-time job. And, and uh, on the very same day that I was offered a, a season at the Guthrie, uh, but for personal reasons, I thought it would be good to stay in New York. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, I, uh, and I did. And that turned into a two decades of work in advertising. Okay. So um, while I know I'm old, yeah. I, while I know I'm very, very old. <laughs> I really did not mean my, to like my, come up. In my, in my theater writing <laughs> yeah. career, I'm really very, yeah. very young. I just took this, you know, 20-year uh, detour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then another, uh, you know, decade, uh, I, I, I spent uh, as a creative consultant at a, a motion picture studio in, in California because uh, it was a good way to sort of stop doing advertising mm -hmm. and start doing something else, which was actually writing. And while I was writing um, and do, you know, doing uh, uh, you know, joke polishes or star polishes or you know, redrafting, that sort of thing, out in California, my phone rang, rang one day, um, and it was someone who had been a client of mine at the agency, and he uh, had obviously called everyone that he ever knew, <laughs> alive or dead, and finally came to me and said, would you like to do a, a, a 
musical with the Four Seasons music. And I said, I love Vivaldi. What a great idea. <laughs> and he said, no, I don't mean Vivaldi. I mean Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And I said, really? Why? would why?" He said, well, Mamma Mia just opened. It was a big hit. We could do Mamma Mia with the Four Seasons music. Well, suppose we did. Well, that's not really that interesting. Why? Well, because somebody already did it. And, and I'm in Burbank. <laughs> he said, well, if you come to, when, you, when are you going to come to New York? I told him, he said, would you be willing to have lunch with Frankie Valley and Bob Gordio, the principal members of the original group. And uh, I said, can I bring a friend? And he said, sure, just have lunch and see what you think. Let's remind everyone of the actual point of this, which is to come Jersey see Boys. Jersey Boys yes. at New World Stages, beginning November 22nd. Yes. Jersey Boys, you know, uh, written by Marshall Brickman and, uh, and with songs by uh, Bob Gordio and Bob Crew. And uh, the life of the great Frankie Valley and the and the uh, the four seasons. It's good. It's a good show. Maybe I'll be able to actually get into it when I get back. It, when it was hot, I couldn't get a ticket. I just couldn't get it. Well, you know, that's <laughs> the essence of heat. Is that is that eventually it, it, it wanes, yeah. which is why you're gonna one day you'll be sorry you have that tattoo on your arm. Well, you know, <laughs> it's not. It, it's a whole bunch of different tattoos. I also think just visually, it's like one of the best kick-ass logos. It is a kick-ass logo. Yeah, and I, the, to kick me, even the logo. logo means more than even beyond the show itself. It's a kick-ass logo. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite brilliant. Um, yeah. Well, okay. okay. Pleasure. Thanks. Pleasure. I got a chance to talk with Rick Ellis for about an hour and a half. He had so much to say. Trying to find the bit to put in for this was hard. And we are waiting to put up the full unedited interview, kind of like we did uh, with uh, Glenn Slater last week, because there's so much to say. So end of the season, our last episode, after we put up the Broadway Masterclass, uh, he's going to talk a lot about his writing techniques and especially how to look at adaptations. So that's awesome. And then we will post the whole unedited interview of Rick Ellis. On the boards. Frankenstein is Mary Shelley's novel. Uh, heading into its 200th year, I have been told, as a novel. And heading into its first year running at St. Luke's Theater, uh, the new musical by Eric Sirota, who wrote book music and lyrics, and we have got Eric Sirota, the uh, playwright, musician, and physicist. Composer. <laughs> Composer, no, no, yeah. Not, not yeah, okay. a performer. Composer and physicist here with us today. How you doing? Good, good. <laughs> so I guess right away, I just do have to ask right off the top, how does a physicist get into writing musical theater? Because mm. you're like serious physicist, right? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a serious physicist. I have lots of publications. I publish. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fellow of the American Physical Society, uh, uh, and uh, I got I got my PhD in uh, physics. But, yeah, so PhD is uh, kind of serious. Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, and I'm still uh, you know, actively doing that. I'm uh, a second career, but simultaneous yeah. to my first. Uh, I started in um, uh, I. I Played the piano, and then I started writing music uh, because I realized I wasn't going to be... I would never play the things I played as well as listening to any recorded performance. Yeah. And I just started improvising, and it went towards composition, and I started taking lots of music theory and composition classes in college at Brown while mm -hmm. I was uh, majoring in physics, but I did a lot of 
I'm getting more, feeling more and more inferior as you go. Not only is it a PhD, <laughs> but now it's brown. <laughs> that was when it was easy to get into, easier to get into brown. I mean, not, not. Um, uh, and I, um, I, I thought I would continue writing in grad school. Uh, my music professor said, hey, everyone says that, but once you go into grad school on another subject, you are so engaged in that that you really won't have... Uh, you won't have time, but you might come back to it later. Mm -hmm. and, and sure enough, I did. But actually, uh, Frankenstein uh, was, was my first musical that I started writing. There were many that yeah. came in between before this one went up. Um, and I saw a play on Broadway. My mom took me to the 1981 production on Broadway of a Frankenstein play, not musical, that closed after its first performance, uh, after opening night. Um, <laughs> it was a very expensive production, and I saw a preview of it. And when I saw it, uh, the story like sung in my head is a musical. I went back and I read the uh, reread the, the novel, and um, and I, I saw it as a as a musical. I, I, I heard songs where there was. Uh, uh, story, and it uh, spoke to me on like a whole bunch of levels. Did I you go to a psychiatrist about these voices? Uh, my <laughs> father actually, maybe, you know, rest in peace. He passed away. Let's see, but he was a psychiatrist, <laughs> and, um, and 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 then he he talked to me a lot as I developed this work. Obviously, for a long, you know, so this has been going uh, for uh, a, a long time. But but I I, I felt it was. Uh, 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 a musical, and at that time, I might have been thinking more sort of opera. I didn't. I never wrote a, you know, a musical. I just saw singing, um, and I, I, I heard singing. And uh, like uh, like Victor Frankenstein, I was away from home, far from home, far from a girl I loved, and uh, uh, it spoke to me emotionally and intellectually. Um, but I. Couldn't really write a full musical at that time. I started writing songs. Now, that's not the way you learn to write the musical. Oh, yeah. I've gone to ASCAP workshops. It's even short to talk about now. Now I know better. That's not the way I would start by writing songs. I would actually structure a book. But I didn't know anything about that then. And it took um, 10 years, or almost 10 years, I had my first draft. Um, and then the... Uh, and like normally, so what do you do with the first draft? If you're, well, this table reads and stage. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of that then because I wasn't a theater person. Mm -hmm. And uh, we put on a full production. So it was, um, uh, Amateur was people at work in the science lab, scientists and other people I worked with did it like uh, extracurricular activity. <laughs> uh, and the, the director was, um, a young engineer, she had just graduated uh, Worcester Polytech, right? So it's an engineering school, and they have yeah. a strong theater department. And she was a stage uh, a director. Uh, and so she was directing. And uh, uh, 65 people were involved, and all the elements of a production were there. It was just with the first draft of a script. Yeah. Looking back at it, uh, you know, it, it had a long way to go, but it, it was fun, and it taught me a lot. Um, and, um, I, and so the, the music part, 
I mean, I, I, so I started really with the, the music part and not as much with the lyrics. And I came from, I wouldn't say an opera background, but I was in the earlier days more familiar with, uh, uh, familiar with opera than uh, like a music theater person, especially in the same music theater of the seven, you know, the, the traditional music theater. I was familiar with it. Yeah. I sort of liked it, but I wasn't like into it. And I wasn't like part of the theater groups in school. So, um, and I knew that um, uh, with a background in music, um, uh, I wanted to take people on an emotional journey. And uh, I knew I can do that with the music. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was also a story I wanted to tell. And uh, uh, I, I was in the music uh, can you know, stir this soul. And um, uh, there's like a universal language, but... You know, when the words could join the music as equal partners uh, in service to the story and move the plot and the emotional arc mm -hmm. together, there's no, nothing more emotionally fulfilling. And, and that was sort of the arc I had to sort of get to, which I liked the music uh, and writing a musical. And that I had to learn over, mm -hmm. well, from 1981, when I had the first inkling to write my first musical mm -hmm. to... Today is, is many years and a lot of maturing and, uh, and learning. Yeah. So you're playing a kind of unique run. St. Luke's Theater is kind of known for, uh, the way I would kind of put it, is they kind of do a festival run every day, you know, every day of the week. They have multiple shows play in the house, so it's a way to get a show up commercially, legitimately off-Broadway, yeah. but not have to do, you know, commit to an eight-performance-a-week schedule, yeah. which cuts down on costs and building up. And right. so you got the you're doing Monday nights uh, yeah. from here for a while. Yeah. And my question is, how is that, how does that work? How is that working out? Are you pleased with the situation of of, of being able to get up a show and not have to do an eight performance a week schedule? Very and, very much so. I had done so my other show or if you show something, but your name on my lips. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'll tell you more about that later. So that had an, uh, a run at theater for the New City. And there it was a Theater for the New City uh, production as a resident, uh, I guess I was a resident writer there, but it was a fixed, it, it was like a show, it was a showcase. Yeah. I mean, so it was over two and a half weeks, you know, three weekends uh, condensed. It didn't give very much time to develop it. And before it, you know, as soon as it started, the run was over. Yeah. And uh, 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 doing th this kind of uh, production, with uh, you know almost the, you know the same uh, type of cost, um, it is it, it's off Broadway. It's like when uh, uh, my producer John Lant, the John Lant and Tamara Pika um, are uh, they work with the Right Act Repertory is their uh, company and they develop shows like this. And uh, it's like wait that theater is like on Restaurant Row. It's not like yeah. somewhere, I mean, you know, yeah. the other for the new city, Lower East Side, might as well be New Jersey for people yeah. up on it. So like, it's like, need three buses. Or two I know when I lived there. on the Upper West Side, it would take a lot to get me down to a show on the Lower yeah, East Side. Yeah, it's probably easier than, <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, uh, and it's like, wow, like, it's, it's, it's right in the middle of uh, everywhere. Um, the, uh, and, and so there's no question that that lets, gives us the advantage. We don't have to fill a house that many times a week it's it's you know you can get people to come once a week mm -hmm. but if you have more performances you just have the same number of people having more options of when to go mm -hmm. um and 
it also gives us the time to sort of make changes from week to week. Uh, th- th- we sort of have to, so like because of the limited rehearsal and, and tech time. Yeah. So the idea of a Broadway show is, in, or even the other kinds of shows, you rehearse, you rehearse, yeah. you rehearse, then you do previews. And yeah. when you're ready to open and you like the way it is and you're ready to walk away and let it run like that, yeah. you have your opening. This is not that at <laughs> all. Um, because there are like now seven shows running there, I, I think, uh, you know, in the, if you look on their weekly schedule, that means that there's very little time in the theater for tech and rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So our official preview was the first time the show even ran through, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from beginning yeah. to end, uh, uh, the, the stopped. And before we actually added all the elements, uh, you know, got all the lighting right and all the sound right, was, you know, going to the third performance. And um, uh, we just had, uh, I call it a bye week, you know, mm-hmm. like, like <laughs> language, uh, because on Monday, the, the um, St. Luke's uh, had their annual uh, fundraiser that was pre-booked. Um, it gave us week to, uh, a week to uh, put in changes because once we then saw the show running yeah. with the tech, we said, okay, we really need to do this and this and this with it. Uh, and we're able to do that. So in other kinds of runs of everyday run, you couldn't do it. The run would be over mm-hmm. before you got to do it. So that is very... Uh, uh, you know, advantageous, and uh, so uh, you know it's it's different. It's different, uh, but uh, it's not it's not quite like a fe- you know a, a yeah. festival per se because it is an actual yeah uh, in Spain uh, and you're back to back and it's and it's going on and the run is um, uh, you, you know continuous. It's extended by the time your thing get uh, mm-hmm. much sure when this yeah. will be aired, but uh, it will be probably in its extension mm-hmm. if we're not you know, yeah. know how many months. Uh, basically, uh, we have scheduled performances till the end of the year, and uh, we'll be announcing dates uh, in January around uh, Thanksgiving. So, uh, Does St. Luke's have storage space for all the shows running, or do mm. you have to load in and load out every week? Uh, there is storage space, very, very mm. limited. <laughs> um, so there's like a particular, I think, square footage that one gets. Yeah. It's uh, prime real estate. The uh, advantage, or one of the good things is that... Uh, uh, John Lant and Tamara have another show of theirs running there simultaneously. So they made use of using certain pieces of prop and uh, backdrops in uh, in you know, the backs of things in the same thing and, and uh, economized on that space. But it is uh, limited, and so that means you don't get to go in there and build a scenery and then, you know, knock it down on closing. Yeah. Uh, it's things that come out of a storage closet an hour to two hours before the yeah. performance and put them in and, uh, uh, you know, everyone has to share the lights. Mm-hmm. So there are some fixed lights and some things that, you know, we add for the show in addition and, you know, things could get moved around <laughs> because yeah. the shows in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there, there are those... Little, but those are like little challenges that they know how to work with, and the team that I'm working with is just uh, you know great. I mean, uh, they they know what they're doing and they know how to work in the space. Yeah, so that's it. Sounds like a lot of fun. Like I think it's great that there's more options opening for how people can get their shows produced and yep. how to produce shows commercially on different models because it's tough to build an audience. Like you said, when you're yeah two and a half weeks and the show's over. You don't have time to build word of mouth or like yeah. stuff a bunch of people in, and so it just seems like a really 
great way to start building up an audience and not not kill off a show before it's had a chance to grow. Yeah, yeah we're just you know we're like reaching out yeah. now to uh, academics, uh, uh, people who study Frankenstein, people who teach Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, it's um, it's reading in. Uh, uh, there was an article in the New York Times that it seemed to be like ubiquitously on every college or most college uh, freshman reading list says maybe the only classic that still is uh, is there high school uh, senior ap and now with the bicentennial of the novel around the corner it's actually with this is the bicentennial period because it was written yeah. in 1816 yeah. so there was a lot of uh, a smaller amount of hoopla uh, uh, in that period because that's when it was written and there was the famous yeah. uh, summer that wasn't of uh, 1816 that inspired the novel but now the anniversary of the publication is coming up and so uh, <laughs> but the people when oh I wrote it for the uh, anniversary no I, I conceived it in the 19th 1981. <laughs> if I thought that ooh, it would it would take 37 years <laughs> to get there, I, I might have thought differently. But it, it seemed that this was also when looking at the different shows I have them working on, that this was sort of ready. And it's like, okay, this is the time to to do that one. Uh, it was also a nymph two years ago as a staged reading, so it was. Uh, it was ready, and it's like, okay, I'm not going to wait another year. Gotta put it up sometime this fall, you know, around Halloween. Even though it's not a, yeah. it's not really a spooky. You know, it's not yeah. like, ooh, this is a spooky yeah. um, Frankenstein thing. But it's a good time to start it in advance of 2018, where it'll be running. So, all right. So, congratulations Thank on you. the show. Best of luck with uh, the rest of the run, and uh, thanks for coming on in. Thank you. And before we go, we've got one more demo from Frankenstein. This is I Write by Candlelight, sung by the character Elizabeth, played by Amy London, and also accompanied by Anessa Marie. Thank you. 
curtain call. Well, that wraps up this episode. And it's going to have to satisfy you until January 23rd. Hopefully it'll be that date where we release volume 812. We're going to talk about a lot of things that kind of bridge the gap between opera and musical theater, starting with, well, one of the first things that bridged the gap between opera and musical theater. We got two features. Rodney Ingram is making his uh, Broadway debut starting as a featured role as uh, Raul in Phantom of the Opera. He also understudied Aladdin. And then we've got kind of the head of Cameron McIntosh USA, Seth Sklarhine, to talk about Phantom of the Opera on the road. Yes, they've got a shiny new production with different sets and stuff, so you might want to hear what's going on with that. And he has a couple really choice things to say about music of the night. My favorite quote, probably in 11 years. You don't want to miss it. Also, we've got Christian DeGray, who is the composer of Whiskey Pants. It may be closed right now, but this is a composer you want to hear a lot about. I was blown away with the music in Whiskey Pants. Actually, the whole show, I enjoyed it immensely. So he's going to talk about how he deals with what is essentially opera writing in a musical theater world. And then we've got an opera itself, Lady of the Castle, and its director, Lissa Moira, coming on. So a lot of interesting things to talk about, and you don't want to miss that. All right, this has been Michael Gilbo. And again, special thanks to our associate producer for this half of the season, which is my student at the University of Providence, Catherine Chandler. And again, uh, I really hope if you're interested in finding out about our program, Theater and Business Arts, it's a really, really interesting, great program. And I'd love to talk to you more about it. Check out broadwaybullet.com for a link to that. And also, again, special thanks to our location sponsor, the Dramatist Guild Foundation. New name, expanded mission. Go check them out at dgf.org.